Welcome to this month's Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO here at NatureServe. And I'm really excited about this month's guest. Um, he really needs very little introduction if you've been paying attention at all to conservation issues for the past 50 or 70 years or so. Uh, Paul Ehrlich is famous for many things in biology, ecology, and as a public scientist who is also an iconoclast, a free thinker, and I think it's fair to say an irascible speaker of his mind. Uh, Paul has contributed to modern science of ecology and public discussions of biodiversity and conservation at a level rivaled by very few people in, in the modern period. Uh, Paul's recently published and highly candid memoir entitled Life is a delightful read for anyone interested in the development of modern biological science and the changes in the way academia works and the importance of scientists engaging in public debate. And he um, treads fearlessly into topics that I'm pretty sure that anybody who's followed his career would love to read about. Um, I also think from reading your uh, memoir, Paul, that you have sort of a Forrest Gumpian uh, character in that you're sort of in the right place at the right time. Your career covers some of the most important transitions in in history, from the size of the global population to our understanding of DNA to our understanding of climate change, and the, and the way modern biology works, and so I think it's, I really enjoyed reading through the book and sort of remembering things that I learned as I was um, coming up in uh, in ecology. So uh, thank you for that trail trip down memory lane. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Uh, I often say that the smartest thing I ever did, the only really brilliant, I've done two brilliant things. The most brilliant was marrying Anne, but yes. the second most brilliant was being born in 1932. It was absolutely perfect timing because I got to see the results of the depression. Then I lived through World War II of a, as a teenager so that I was too young to get killed but I was old enough to understand what was going on. Then I went to college and into science at a time when science was being richly rewarded mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was lucky enough to get trained by two absolutely spectacularly smart scientists um, and then got a job at Stanford University when it was in the process of trying to become a university. It had been a finishing school, basically. Uh, and it had very smart leadership in those days. Um, Fred Terman, for example, who was very interested in the ways education could be supported. And there was huge debates, which we should have today, but don't, on whether or not to hook up with industry and more violently, particularly during the Vietnam War, of whether to do military research. Uh, so I was one of the first people to get a grant from the National Science Foundation when mm -hmm. science was richly rewarded. And now as I'm fading from the scene, science is not being richly rewarded. And in fact, it's being attacked at every front. So that's true. I chose a, an interesting time to get born. <laughs> uh, never mind the, uh, what is it? You said 14 billion years before that when you weren't around. And right, didn't, yeah. Right. And there's going to be another 14 when I'm not going to be around. Maybe a lot more than that. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we overlapped because 
as I was reading and reflecting on some of the people you talk about earlier in your career and later in your career, um, we have some overlaps in the people that we worked with and the things that I was learning uh, were things that you were basically not inventing, but co-discovering uh, with other people. And so I just wanted to talk about a couple of the very specific, like, hey, I'm a butterfly biologist and I study all aspects of the biological world. Uh, some of your favorite discoveries uh, from well, your career. Uh, again, a, a lot of things haven't been brains, they've been accident. I got interested in butterflies in a nature program in a summer camp. Um, and I have always had a collector's gene. Uh, and butterflies were wonderful things to collect. Yeah. And they also interested me greatly in evolution because you could see the variation in, within species, within populations, and so on and so forth. And so I had a natural interest in butterflies that led me among other things, to join the Lepidopterus Society, which was just starting. I am one of the last two or three survivors of the initial members of the society. Uh, but it turned out that they are absolutely ideal tools for asking important questions in evolution and ecology. And they have proven from my background to, uh, from my experience, uh, to fulfill that wonderfully. Uh, Think about it for a minute. First of all, um, you can handle a lot of butterflies faster than you can handle birds. I've worked with birds uh, quite a bit, but you really, to do interesting things with them, very often, um, all you can do is watch them. You can't collect them, dissect them, and so on. Uh, if you do too much of that, rightly, little old ladies will come and poke your eyes out with umbrellas. Uh, people really care very little about insects, though I do. Uh, but uh, I've probably been able to write numbers on the wings in code or directly on the wings of several hundred thousand butterflies over my career. That's amazing. And able through that to study uh, their ecology, their representatives of our biggest competitors for food, herbivorous insects. Uh, Another huge advantage is the interest in them in amateurs so that there are guides to the butterflies of virtually every place in the world. So you don't have, if you work on fruit flies, which I have, uh, you have a big problem going to a new place and identifying the flies there. With butterflies, you don't have that problem. Right. Uh, so uh, that was a huge advantage to butterflies. And the most basic work probably that people would credit me and Peter Raven for on the relationship of butterflies to their food plants <clears throat> comes very directly from people collecting butterflies. Because if you have a collection, you like perfect specimens. How do you get a perfect specimen? You find a caterpillar, figure out what it's feeding on, feed it until it becomes a butterfly. And as soon as it's beautifully emerged and looks gorgeous, you kill it <laughs> and mount it and put it in your collection. And so, and when you've done that, you write a note to a journal and say, I raised Exus albus on the plant Biaceus. Uh, and so it turned out when Peter and I started that work that there was a huge database, unrecognized as such, of what one of the largest groups of herbivorous animals fed on. And it was a, just a pure serendipity. Uh, and of course, two brilliant people 
dealing with the luck. But anyway, so butterflies have turned out to be wonderful for me and supplied many surprises. Uh, Larry Gilbert and I found that one of the tropical long-winged butterflies um, lived long enough to fly with its grandchildren. Most people rightly think of insects as short-lived, mm-hmm. but we found a butterfly that actually Larry found that it ate pollen, that it, because it's so dangerous to be a butterfly in the tropics, uh, caterpillars are very vulnerable. And so this butterfly goes through the caterpillar stage very rapidly. Whereas the ones that I worked on for years here on Stanford campus emerge with hundreds of eggs to lay. Uh, The ones we work with in Costa Rica um, emerge with two or three eggs to lay and they ate pollen uh, in order to get the protein to produce eggs over a long period and laid them gradually over many weeks and months. Uh, and uh, another, it was a good example of how a graduate student can outthink you because I had seen and described the things on the butterfly's mouth parts uh, that I thought were sensory, and they turned out to be gadgets to help you get the pollen because these things did not sip nectar. Uh, they collected pollen and then injected digestive juice, uh, fluid into the pollen and then sucked in the results. It's so uh, incredible. So cool. So you just, you run. The biggest surprise I ever had with butterflies was supplied by another colleague named Daryl Way, an artist who, among other things, wrote a bird guide uh, with me. But she noticed that butterfly patterns, the wing patterns, often are little pictures of the caterpillars showing their signs that say I'm poisonous, the so-called aposematic markings that warn birds that things are distasteful. And I had not noticed, and as far as I know, other butterfly people had never noticed that the patterns on the wings looked often like caterpillars. And uh, so I mentioned that in the book, and uh, I think people are still studying this to see Right, we'd like to know what's happening. Yeah, yeah. it's a, an ideal thing for for uh, citizen science. Yes. So, you know, one of the things I often like to ask people in our field is what inspired them to get into the field. And it sounds like uh, you must have had some great camp counselors. Um, and in addition to that, um, your mother was an amazing supporter of your. That's work. what I was going to say. My main counselor was called Mom. Yeah, uh, she uh, encouraged me in anything. I, I was greatly spoiled, and I loved it. I remember when I was about four, four and a half. She said, "How would you like a little brother or sister?" And I said, "Not at all, mom." <laughs> Not realizing that the deed was already done. <laughs> yeah, uh, and Sally has turned out to be a wonderful sister. <laughs> but I was. Quite happy being the center of attention. Uh, yeah, and it's probably as your as my friends and enemies will tell you, it's stuck with me. <laughs> so uh, it's funny because I was thinking about this. I've been also reading Douglas Brinkley's book, Silent Spring Revolution, which covers a lot of the same time period that the uh, early parts of your book cover. 
and was reflecting back on some of the big names, um, Rachel Carson, of course, and others. Um, and you mentioned a lot of women scientists in your book, but also have seen the transition from a time when there were very few women and people of color involved in science in general, but particularly in the ecological sciences to today. And I just wanted to have you reflect on that transition. Well, there's, there's a social trend there that you can see. Um, First of all, I'm one of the oldest Jewish scientists to go into ecology and evolution. And theoretically, there are social scientists that have looked at this a little, but primarily I think it was because Jews were not allowed to live land, to live uh, to own land and so on. And farming, um, most of the old time ecologists and so on often came from landowners and uh, relatively well-off families and families that uh, could uh, uh, afford, basically, things like butterfly collecting. And I think the same thing held for women. We live in a hideously misogynist society still, but one of the things I'm proud of is that my disciplines, ecology and evolution, have gradually uh, brought in or allowed in uh, wonderful women scientists who now almost, I, you know, when I think of the real leaders, I think of people like Gretchen Daly at Stanford and uh, lots and lots of others uh, who have uh, done fantastic work and are now taking over the field, which is great. That doesn't mean that we still haven't got a huge amount of work to do. So that actually brings me to something that's very relevant and uh, apropos for NatureServe and something I talk about a lot on these conservation conversations. And that's of course, biodiversity and the idea of the sixth extinction. And I would love to hear you talk about um, your experience with the sixth extinction. And before you start, I wanted to just let you know that um, probably people who talk to me are getting a little bit tired of me using your rivets on the airplane analogy when it comes to <laughs> extinction. Um, I was in a situation in the field where a reporter was talking about a species of crabgrass that has, was being declared extinct. And he's like, you know, what do we care? It's just a crabgrass. And I had to explain the rivets on the airplane, but also just because it's small and it's a grass doesn't mean that it's less significant than if, say, a tree was going extinct or some mammal was going extinct. And trying to explain the interconnectedness of everything was really, really. Rather than go through the rivets, just this very simple thing. Uh, it was the other organisms of the planet that created the environment that made it possible for Homo sapiens to evolve. And we have a 300,000 year history. And when people talk about returning to normal after the COVID epidemic, it just tells you they have no real idea what normal is for human beings. Normal for human beings is living in very small groups relatively equitable, where the leaders tend to be people who do something well, not lie, for example, or cheat, but actually the hunt leader was somebody who knew how to hunt. And the person who did the curing was a woman who knew all the local plants. Uh, and the person who solved disputes was somebody who just happened to be very handy at helping people talk to each other. We're a hypersocial animal. So we're a small group animal trying to live in gigantic groups. And I think we can see we're doing a lousy job of it. And part of the lousy job 
is that our universities don't train people to know that we're fighting against a long, normal history of human beings and doing a lousy job of it. Sorry, that's the end of the sermon. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what you're known for, I think, uh, those sermons. But um, so in terms of like specifically thinking about biodiversity on the planet and extinction and the, you know, your colleagues at Stanford are some of the leaders on this and you've, you've written on this quite a bit. Uh, I'd love to just hear you talk about like the, how we got here and what we can do. You know, you're a, you're a public scientist. Uh, this is sort of a multi-part question, um, which is something that has often been pilloried in the past. You're not taken seriously as a scientist. If you're a public scientist, you face this, Carl Sagan, other people have faced this sort of criticism for, uh, as you talk about in the book, not starting with an introduction and a methods and a proceeding, you know, getting to the conclusions, but being able to go on the Johnny Carson show and talk in a way that will engage the public enough that you get invited back. Well, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to convince people that the communication is part of a scientist's duty and that when you become a scientist, you do not give up your rights as a citizen. And uh, when you work on butterflies, if people want to say, how can you possibly talk about climate disruption if you're a butterfly scientist? Well, the point is, scientists are scientists. They develop ways of looking at problems. And they talk to each other. And why do I not hesitate to talk, say, something about climate disruption, even though I've worked primarily on butterflies, reef fishes, mites, and so on? Uh, it is because some of my closest friends are some of the best climate scientists in the world. And I've spent many, many, many hours reading the literature and studying it. And when you've done that, in my view, it's perfectly all right, not only all right, but it's required that you pass it on to the public. You've got to be, when you do that, very careful, as careful as you can be, and sometimes not as I'm not as careful as I should be, to A, say what the scientific consensus is. Then say, um, if you differ with the scientific consensus, how do you differ and why? So people will understand where you're coming from. And then it's perfectly okay to say what you think uh, you ought to do. Scientists have to be broad. They have to always look at the general conclusions that come from their work and the work of others that they read. And as I have always done, Anne and I have always done, and I have to say, well, I'm the mouth, but Anne's the brains. But when people say, oh, Ehrlich was dead wrong in the population bomb. Well, it was read by some of the best scientists in the world before we published it. There were mistakes in it. My God, if I did something as a scientist 50 years ago or 60 years ago and still thought exactly the same thing, it'd be a dead science. Science moves ahead. Scientists criticize each other. Scientists make mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and what scientists, if you go to any good scientific journal uh, like science or nature, you will find retractions. Uh, and that's exactly the way the system should work. No, if a scientist isn't making mistakes, they're not asking important questions. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, that's the scientific process, of course. Exactly. <laughs> it's the way it should work. So you brought up the population bomb, which I was going to uh, ask about, because it is one of the things that your 
very well known for outside of scientific circles, more in the general public. And it is also something that people have definitely taken the opportunity to um, perhaps misinterpret and attack you in different ways and attack uh, the things that you're trying to say. But there's a more nuanced answer, and it's not even that nuanced, but there's a there's a more precise answer to what you were trying to say in that book and in subsequent analyses and reanalyses of what you were talking about. So I wanted to give you that opportunity to sort of update us to uh, 2023 and the population bomb. Well, I had a lot of good experience being attacked, uh, and I was recently thrilled, by the way, just before my memoir came out. Elon Musk attacked me in the population bomb. Uh, and he's a very good example of the financialization of value. That is, if somebody has millions and millions and millions of dollars, it totally overrides the fact that he's a moron. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, being attacked was very useful for me, just like your immune system should be attacked. That is, you may know there's a lot of thought now that one of the problems we have with a lot of um, chronic diseases is that our children are not exposed to enough different things that our immune system should learn to defend us against. Um, and so uh, as far as the the numerous articles still coming out in the New York Times or in The Guardian about how the population bomb never went off and how uh, we're going to face the problem of too few people soon, and so on and so forth. Well, the most serious study of this done recently was done by Sir Partha Dasgupta. Since my colleague Ken Arrow at Stanford, the world's best economist, died, Partha is now the world's best economist. And the British government put together a team for him to basically study the economics of biodiversity and the world. And Partha came to the following conclusion, which has been published extensively, that if we did everything right, we might sustain a population of about 3 billion, maybe 3.2 billion people, if everyone were willing to live at a Mexican standard of living. And if that doesn't put into clear view what the issue is with population. I think Partha's a little optimistic, but of course, what we're seeing is a silly species. We're like uh, a rich kid um, without much brains uh, who inherits a fortune. It's in the bank. And so he just starts writing checks on it. And what he never does is look at the balance because what we're doing as Partha, Sir Partha Dasgupta points out in great detail, uh, is using not living on the interest of our capital, but burning our capital. Uh, mm. We're getting rid of the systems that support our lives. We are sawing off the limb that we're sitting on, and a major cause of virtually every one of the existential problems civilization faces is there are too many people. The population is still growing. They are per capita consuming too much. And it's extremely unequal. The inequality is a major factor as well. And the words that I can't use publicly on television and the ones that John Holdren and I got crucified over using 
in a book 30 or 40 years ago is we need redistribution. There is no way to solve the world's problems while eight people have as much money as the poorest 3.1 billion people. Uh, and uh, I have, as far as the population bomb goes, the basic message was correct. It is still correct. And I don't care how many people say otherwise because my scientific colleagues don't. 15,000 scientists signed on on a paper saying basically the things that I and a thousand scientists said in 1993 were still correct. And I and other scientists live by the opinions of scientists, uh, not by the opinions of the Elon Musks or the Donald Trumps uh, or the Josh Hawleys or so on of the rich uh, people who have no clue how the world works. And it's a really sad. Yes. And it's great that you like your process in putting together the book and the thought process holds up through um, the analysis. It's very, uh, it's exciting and it must be encouraging for you. Um, but I'm thinking one of the, another question I like to ask people on this program is about their, their legacy. And, you know, you've just written a book which talks about your legacy, but thinking about it from the perspective, um, I think you have three grandchildren. And, you know, when they're talking to their children about their grandfather, what do you what do you want them to say about you? I would like them to say that I tried. I, I hate to say that I'm afraid I failed. Uh, but uh, like many of my colleagues, by the way, we just keep trying. It's the habit. Um, most of us are very pessimistic about what's going to happen. Uh, but. Uh, I keep hoping, you know, one of the things we do know about human beings is they can change very rapidly uh, when the uh, when the circumstances are right. Uh, to give a one example, in 1941, the U.S. produced something on the order of four million automobiles up through December 7th. And then Pearl Harbor was attacked. And I remember this very clearly, including the December 7th uh, day when I was I was nine years old at the time. Uh, and all of a sudden, everything changed. We rationed all sorts of stuff. Um, men went away to war and a lot of them didn't come back. Um, we totally changed our propaganda. We didn't produce any passenger cars. After that, we produced tanks and airplanes and, and artillery pieces and so on and so forth over the next four plus years. And the change, similar changes took place in England, in Japan, and so on. There was entire societies tooled up to fight a war where people thought that their existence was at stake. Now, for the first time in history, we have a global situation where everybody's existence is at stake. I wanted to end by saying, because of reading your book and thinking about you and your relationship with your mother, and as I said before, the Silent Spring Revolution, um, I've come to realize and appreciate just how significant uh, my mother's role was in um, 
my career and interesting me in the natural world and my worldview. And uh, this episode is going to come out pretty close to Mother's Day. And um, even though your mother has passed, I think it's time for us to uh, acknowledge both of our mothers. And I think at the same time, uh, your wife, Anne, who it sounds from all of the stories in the book and from everything you've said here today, sounds like she was a great mother for uh, Lisa. Smartest thing I actually ever did. I didn't choose really when I was born, but uh, I, I did have something to do with whether or not Anne married me. Uh, but we've only been married for 67 years. So, you know, who knows what will happen? You've got time. She is my first wife. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, I, I want to thank you for everything you've done for ecology and for raising the awareness of the general public for to the issues that face our planet and uh, for training so many great scientists. As I read through your book and saw the names of the people whose papers I've read over the years and who are making an impact on the world right now, um, it was truly inspiring. So thank you for all of that. Well, thank you, Sean, for doing what you're doing, which is even more important, getting the word out. Thank you. Um, so this has been Conservation Conversations with John O'Brien and Paul Ehrlich, and we thank you for listening and look forward to having you uh, with us again next month.